Hello, everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And my co-host for today is a comic that you might know from several disciplines, several different places. Perhaps you have seen her acting on shows like The Blacklist for Life or Bull. Maybe you know that she won the Boston Comedy Festival as well as the Ladies of Laughter competition. And maybe you've seen her new comedy album, A Very Particular Experience, racing up the charts on iTunes. You can be a part of the movement too. You can get in on that, you guys. Liz Glazer, uh, expert at law, comic... Professor, educator, <laughs> um, giver and bringer of joy and laughter and contemplation, I suppose, because comedy is a nuanced art form. Welcome to the show. Is there anything else that people need to know about you before we get started? <laughs> I feel like that's the intro that my mother would be the <laughs> happiest that you gave. So I just so appreciate it, Jordan. Yeah, Good. I mean, you know, it, the I'm not an expert. I can tell you that right off the bat. Okay, I appreciate it. I'm certainly not going to deny it for the purpose of a credit. Although I guess that's literally what I'm doing right now. But like <laughs> sometimes people talk about imposter syndrome, right? Like this sure. is a thing. Yeah. And I feel like the regular trope about imposter syndrome is this kind of like, yeah, but we all have it. So like, you're not an imposter. Can I tell you, so I, I used to be a law professor. Now I do comedy, yes. you know, classic, rude. Everybody does it. Every comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The right? traditional, the exactly. traditional path. Right, right, right. So, but in seriousness, like I, I don't feel like a fraud as a comedian. Not because I think I'm hilarious all the time, but because I know what I'm here for with doing yeah. it, right? Whereas I, I mean, I haven't taught law for, what was the last time I, I taught law last in 2015. And so it's okay. eight years ago that I even did anything in law because I haven't done anything since that has anything to do with law. And other than do comedy at law schools or law firms, which like sure. isn't the same. Okay. It's terrific, <laughs> by the way. And like, if anyone listening, I mean this seriously because I didn't think I would love to do it as much as I do. Cause like corporate uh-huh. gigs, you know, generally comedians like don't love a corporate gig. Cause it's like, Oh, yeah. you have to like sort of censor yourself or whatever it is. It feels like a sli- one of those slippery slope. Right. Things. Right. Exactly. I, I cannot tell you how much I love to do law schools and law firms because basically <laughs> my North star, I only started doing them during the pandemic because like literal friends of mine who I worked with in the law firm or who I taught with either at the same school or we knew each other from conferences or whatever it was, we're like, hey, can you come on a Zoom and just like make our community less upset? And I was like, yeah, for sure. (laughs) And I started it then and I've done it, you know, into now. And let me tell you, like, they've been such a hit, which is like the most fun (laughs) because it's such a great intersection of like the thing that's the most fun for me and the thing that's the most fun for the audience, like coming together right. in this beautiful, magical thing. And like oh my North Star for writing material for those communities is like, what was I too afraid to say when I was in the world, right? That feels like it could be cathartic. Yeah. And it's nothing earth shattering. I was just like right. basically afraid that I was the only one who felt stupid. You know, sure, 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 sure. Because I'm yeah. like everybody else is so smart, and that's what I was tra- starting to say 
with with the imposter syndrome is like mm-hmm. now looking back, I had imposter syndrome when I was a lawyer and I had it when <laughs> I was a law professor. And now I'm like many years going on a decade out and I'm like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. I was right. I was an <laughs> imposter. Like, not to say I didn't deserve the job. Like, I sure. graduated. I did whatever. Like, it's like with jobs that people get from you go to school, you get a degree, you take a mm-hmm. test, whatever, that kind of thing. It yeah. makes sense that people would then have imposter syndrome because what I feel I was most skilled at was swindling mm. admissions officers, right? That is such a skill. Yeah. That is such a skill. There are some people who are just great at fucking getting jobs. And the thing is, I was one of them. And that doesn't <laughs> mean that I didn't deserve to get into the school or to get the job or whatever yeah. it was. But it means that I was an imposter. And like, sure, sure. You were, you were successfully running a correct. con job. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing, I'm like, the only thing that I wasn't a fraud at was being a uh-huh. fraud. I was a verified <laughs> fraud, okay? And so you were the Anna Delvey of getting <laughs> into law circumstances. But I, don't, I don't yeah, I think you're right. Now I don't feel like a fraud. I don't have imposter yeah. syndrome, but it can be hard to believe in myself, right? Like sure. like I think I'm funny, I think I'm good at what I do, and also mm-hmm. the extent to which I think in a creative field that one must believe in oneself is pretty yeah. intense because yes there's a lot of rejection and you can find it there's anybody can say something about you're in the public eye right and so when you're in that space believing in yourself is this like premium like and i see mm-hmm. people as i imagine you do who it's mm-hmm. like they believe in themselves in such a fashion that i'm like mm-hmm. that's guts You know, like, I see it. I think this is why, and, like, we will get to the character in a moment, but I think going into comedy as a second career is such a smart move Mm. because I, entertainment generally, challenging career, lots of rejection, lots of hustle, lots of legwork. There is a specific kind of difficulty to comedy. Yes. I think there is a specific kind of difficulty to being, if you are not a cis man, going into comedy. Sure. There is a kind of, like, knock around part of the job of like you know taking your licks to build to get your way up the ladder that I feel like coming into comedy as second career when you have established yourself and Mm -hmm. like your confidence and who you are in another realm and then bringing it into comedy and sort of maybe being like no this is my second career I didn't come here to get my ass kicked if I wanted to do that like no I learned those lessons a while ago so I feel like there's a pragmatism to the circumstance of coming into comedy second. I think that's true. And also like, you know, I mean, I joke about, oh, it's the classic route because it's weird and circuitous. Mm -hmm. I I liked what I was doing in law. However, Mm -hmm. I had the chance to do comedy and I realized that like, for me, it was a little closer to what I I think I was after. Not necessarily in law, because I think in law, if I'm being real, the thing I was after was just like appeasing my parents and their anxiety. That's very real. Yeah. Yeah. Because my parents are descended from Holocaust survivors on both sides, like four out of four grandparents. And so I think that, and I talk about this on the album. Thank you for mentioning Mm -hmm. it, by the way. 
like that there's an inherited trauma that arises. I talk on the album about it in terms of a fear of everybody dying. But I think that Mm. another attendant fear that comes with it is a fear of like, oh, you're not going to be okay. You have to have a profession and whatever. Yeah. And I, I, I don't like, there's not a moment that I'm not grateful for the first career. Because first Mm -hmm. of all, I don't think I would have been buoyed financially or as you're saying in terms of my sense of self without Mm -hmm. that, you know, cutting my teeth in a different way in that Mm -hmm. first career. First of all, if I would have been a comic in my 20s as opposed Mm -hmm. to a young lawyer or young law professor, I mean, my God, I was teaching in our night program when I was 27 years old, 137 night students who were like (laughs) grown people, property law, which is like historically the most boring type of law, okay? And if you don't think that I, I mean, I learned so much about how to carry myself. Yeah, you're like, like, I can do this room with my type five because I taught 137 night students property law. Yeah, I mean, I feel that. Don't challenge me. I feel that. Anyway, so I'm pretty young. At the time, I think I was like 11 years junior to the next oldest person on the faculty. So I was terrified for a hundred million reasons. One of which (laughs) was, I was like, like... I was like, they're not going to take me seriously because I'm so young. And then after a class, one of these like, you know, older, very senior guys who I was on the faculty with comes over to me. He's like, Liz, what are you doing in there? It sounds like a comedy club. And I had no (laughs) aspirations to comedy at that time at all. Interesting. And I was horrified because I'm like, oh, my God. They're going to think that I'm not serious enough. I have to be less funny. Meanwhile, now, looking back on that story, I'm like, I wish I was taping my sets. Like, what the hell was I doing? (laughs) Because these are big lecture halls. And if if it was so loud that you could Mm -hmm. hear it in the hallway, right? What I wouldn't (laughs) give for that kind of response now. But anyway, so it's not that I have anything negative to to say or that I feel about Mm -hmm. my prior career. It just was like not exactly for me, right? Yeah. I just don't think that that was like, I wasn't done kind of fully Mm -hmm. realizing myself, you know, in just doing that. But anyway, so verified fraud is what I think. Verified fraud. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. what you just said something though that I think is a perfect segue into the meat of the discussion, which is you said like, I wasn't done like, like essentially becoming myself yet sort of situation. And the Wonder Years, yeah. the character that you brought for us to discuss today, yeah. is the star of that show, Kevin Arnold, right. as played by Fred Savage, of course. Mm-hmm. And that is a show about that exact sentiment. Like, yeah. it is a show about becoming oneself in the sort of, like, there are multiple points in our lives that are, like, sort of key formative eras. Mm-hmm. But, you know, perhaps the rawest, yeah. most, like, nakedly unchecked among them right. is that is the set of teenage years that yeah. this takes place in. The, the Wonder Years tracks Kevin Arnold from the ages of 12 to 17, mm-hmm. from 1968 to 1973, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Arnold is the character that you have brought because yeah. you felt seen by this character. 1968, I was 12 years old. A lot happened that year. Denny McLean won 31 games, the Mod Squad hit the air, and I graduated from Hillcrest Elementary and entered junior high school. But we'll get to that. 
So I got to tell you, yes, I did feel seen by him. And also I felt seen by Kevin and by the kind of intersection of Fred Savage's performance and Daniel Stern's monologue Mm. because I misunderstood it. I'm watching it. I'm like eight or nine. Okay, so this is—is is this a real time watch? Like you're yeah. watching it as it airs? Oh, hundred okay, percent. I mean, so I'm yeah. 43. This comes out when I'm in like third, fourth grade. Wow. And yeah. so he's a little older than me as the character, but like you know, he looked pretty little as yeah, a 12 he did. year old. He did. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, like, because I'm like. I can never know. I never know how old anybody is. Like, unless someone's <laughs> a baby or a thousand. Like, the, yeah. people, the people who know, like, oh, well, that's a 17-month-old. I'm like, what yeah. kind yeah. of no. magic powers do you have? I've no, like, they don't carry ID. I have no clue how you know. <laughs> they but don't anyway. have a sim bubble that tells me. Right. Like, I don't get it. But he's, you know, he seemed like he looked young. But maybe not. I have no mm. idea. Whatever. I sort of viewed him at the time as a peer, even though I was slightly younger, is my point. And I was watching the show when it first came on, and I remember being Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, that's my brain. And what I mean specifically, Mm -hmm. so my first memory, okay, Mm -hmm. ever in my whole life, I'm looking out the window. We lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey in an apartment building on the second floor, okay? Mm-hmm. And like it was like the sun was setting. I was a pretty spaced out kid, like very pensive, <laughs> okay? And mm-hmm. I'm looking out. There's like a motel and a highway out the horizon from my parents' mm-hmm. apartment building. And I'm just like doing, you know, just sitting. And my mother is like, Elizabeth, what are you thinking about? And I said, yeah. Mommy, one day today will be a long time ago. And I was four so years true. old at the time. Yeah, so she was pretty impressed. She's like, excuse me, I have to go call my sister and show off about the fact that you <laughs> said that. But second of all, you know, that mentality of yeah, this moment that I'm mm-hmm. living now is going to be seen later, okay? And yeah. a beautiful thing, by the way, is like now where I live, which is also in New Jersey, that was in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I now live in Essex County, that's Bergen County, whatever. But sometimes sure. when I go into the city, I actually pass that, not just the apartment building, okay? It's Midwest. Uh-huh. If anybody is like so Fort Lee that like you want to <laughs> <Yeah>, know. <laughs> so Fort Lee. <laughs> right. But so I, so my route sometimes to the city to do stand up for the night for shows happens to be not just passing the apartment, but like what mm-hmm. would be the view of God. right there. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think about it, of course, every single time because yeah. I'm like, wow, it's a really great thing. Because, I was right. Like yes. one day and, that will have been, <laughs> yes. a lo- this will be a long time ago. Right. And that. Oh my God, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. And and I, I think in addition, I mean, just the passage of time alone is an mm-hmm. accomplishment. I mean, my my album itself very, is about good point. Yeah, like it's it's literally about a stillbirth that my wife and I experienced. And so I don't take for granted. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Um, thank you. Um, mm. but it's about the album is about grief and stillbirth and pregnancy mm. loss and things like that. And it's funny. I a hundred percent promise that it's funny. And it's also like I really because of the gravity, not only of the material like in its topic, but in its mm-hmm. happening to me and my wife, 
Like, I really wanted to make sure that it was not only a good comedy album, but also that I said something that was, like, complete and, like, weighty enough to merit the creation Mm -hmm. of this in order to honor that, you know, and the memory of our our daughter, Leo Pearl. But in any event, so the passage of time alone is an accomplishment Mm -hmm. um, in light of, you know, some people don't get to experience the passage of time. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. also, you know, there are moments like I live my life and a lot of it is like, okay, I get to go into the city from New Jersey to do comedy shows. And sometimes the comedy shows are great comedy shows, but sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to do a set kind of in the middle of nowhere, maybe three people, maybe I'll make $7. And it can be a little hard in those moments to be grateful. Okay. Yeah. Like legitimately (laughs) grateful. To be happy to be here. Right. And that moment, like, I'm always grateful for the route taking me that way because then Mm -hmm. I check myself and I'm just Mm -hmm. like, you know what? It's a long time ago and I'm living what I Mm want to be living. So that's really something. This resonates so much with sort of exactly the sort of frame of mind I've been in right now lately because, like, I'm making, I'm, like, doing a career transition in my mid-late 30s. I love that. And... I and I like never met a practical career I liked mm-hmm. going from journalism to filmmaking. Yeah. Parents couldn't possibly be more confused. Oh, about I relate it. to that. But like yeah. it is I feel a sense of impatience with wanting to be where I want to be further faster. Yes. But I generally like I never really think about my age. I'm very I'm 38 mm-hmm. and I never really think Good about age. it's fine with me. But like I've been really had cause to really consider like 38 and what's that means to me sure. recently. And, and even just a few days ago I was having a conversation with a friend about how Actually, upon like looking inward with it specifically, how grateful I am yeah. for 38. Yeah. Because like besides like the job Ajita and like sure. the economy such as it is, all that thing, all those things. Yeah. Who I am and how much of myself I have learned how to be and how fully myself I have learned how to be incorporating the lessons of the 38 years and really embracing them and wanting to be better and more of me all the time. Totally. I fucking love 38 because I just Mm -hmm. get to be better at doing this all of the time, which means I'm only going to keep getting better. And that just excited me so much to really sit with my age and be grateful, like you said. And that is such an amazing point of like, Passage of time is a luxury. It is a gift. Not everyone gets that. And that is such a beautiful thing to point out. Oh, thanks, Jordan. And I really, I'm, I, I watch now your life. I mean, we're just meeting now, but I'm going. We're just meeting. I'm going to track you forever. Okay. And no, with great interest and love, because I think that that's, first of all, I do like you and I, I am very. I'm enjoying your company. I am too. Truly and sincerely for me too. And also like, yeah, I think that's a super exciting moment. Also, I loved 38. I I met my wife when I was 38. I'm trying to think what else happened during 38. But like, that was like a good time. You know, I I really enjoyed it. But I misinterpreted. This is the reason I was saying this. I thought when I was watching Kevin's face, right, like Fred Savage's face, and then Daniel Stern's voiceover, I was like, oh, my God, this is a story about a person who's living their life while understanding what the future of their life is, which it's not. But <laughs> that's a fascinating switcheroo. Yeah. And so so the way the show works is like much more standard than that. And the remake as well, which I, mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure to watch the reboot, which I did 
for mm-hmm. the purposes of this conversation. Because to be honest, I did not watch all of the Wonder Years. I dipped out okay. at some point. The thing I remember most about the my, the one years that I watched was like the dinner table conversations yeah. with the Arnold family yes. and like being like kind of put off by what a hard ass his dad is. But he's just like, yeah. you know, very archetypal, like 60s, 70s dad. When my father had a bad day at work, he'd just sit in the dark by himself and watch TV. We learned early on that this was a danger signal. Damn it, Kevin. How many times did I tell you not to leave your bicycle out in the driveway? But I... You think they grow on trees? If you don't want to take care of it, you don't have to have it. But I was just going to ride it over to Paul's later. Well, now you're not going to ride it over to Paul's. You're going to put it away, and then you're going to go to your room. Now! And then sometimes, you knew you shouldn't do it, but you just couldn't help yourself. Okay, okay, get a grip on yourself. You gave him lip. What did you say? I feel like it focuses less on those dinner table conversations as it goes on to like Kevin with like girlfriends. Right, right. But of course I have, I like so many have all carried a torch for Winnie Cooper my entire life. So it it certainly stuck with me. Yeah, totally. No, she was amazing. Hi. 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 What you doing? Nothing. Oh. When are you coming back to school? Monday? But maybe we could do something tomorrow. I mean, if you want. Yeah, I mean, sure. If you want. Well, I think this is this is an interesting way into a character, like fixing to a Kevin Arnold, in because like and this gets yeah. to something I wanted to bring up, which is I have a friend who was obsessed with the Wonder Years growing up, one of nice. my very best friends. Yeah. She loved the show. And she is one of my most wonderfully nostalgic friends ah, that I have. Like uh-huh. every once in a while she just goes on these nostalgia benders. She sure. was the one in high school who loved listened to Bob Dylan and and all oh, and classic okay. rock and yeah. was a Led Zeppelin fan from mm-hmm. like twelve and is still like Yeah. She feels so kind of rooted in a time before she was alive. Ah. And there is, and I feel like the Wonder Years, like it is, it's a show looking back. It came out like sort of, it. I think each episode, each year it came out was 20 years to the year from when the show takes place. Right. And so I wondered what is... What is your relationship with nostalgia? As somebody who does a lot of thinking about a life in, a, in you know, from mm-hmm. a 30,000 foot view in terms of like the gift of the passage of time, mm-hmm. like, do you, are you somebody who like keeps these snow globes? Like, do you keep yeah. a lot of these snow globes on yourself with these, yeah. on your shelf with these self-contained memories? Do you, you know, fondly look back or I, contemplatively? Yeah, I do fondly look back on memories, but like when you're talking about your friend, I'm thinking of, of a friend of mine who is very nostalgic. Her name is Lissa Mandel. She's a wonderful performer, writer, comedian. Mm. And she used to have a show that sometimes comes back, but it's called The Bitch Seat. And um, in it, you would bring like an artifact from your childhood. And she would like give an artifact from her childhood. And like, I loved I loved doing the show and I would love mm. to do it if it ever comes back or whatever. But I don't know that I relate myself as like that mm. level of nostalgia. And I think in this way, some of my misinterpretation of the Wonder Years is relevant mm. because like, I mean... It's a gorgeous story, both the reboot and the original. The in the in the reboot, um, Martin Luther King is shot and killed, assassinated in the pilot, 
Whereas mm-hmm. in the original, Brian Cooper, Winnie's older brother, who had been drafted and was like the coolest kid on the block, the only one who can get Wayne, Kevin's older brother, to stop beating him up, it right. dies. And that yeah. He's spurs, killed in Vietnam. And he's correct? killed in Vietnam. That's right. So he's drafted and then he dies at the end of the episode, which then leads Kevin to take a walk and into, you know, this woods area that's nearby and then he kisses Winnie Cooper I went down to the big climbing tree in Harper's Woods I didn't admit it to myself until years later but in my mind was the shadow of a thought that Winnie might be there she was sort of hugging herself I didn't know what to say. I had the strangest feeling. It was impossible for me to believe that Brian was dead. I'm sorry about Brian. And I'm sorry for what I said today. It wasn't true. I know. I knew that it was about the past, but it was more like, okay, if this is the way that this kid whose life looks pretty much like mine, yeah, then I get to like understand how he understands his now time in mm-hmm. the future. And I think I'm sort of also realizing this in real time, if I can be honest about that. Like a lot of my childhood was nonsensical and I was Mm. I could say to me but I think in general and I mean by that that like my parents um so my parents were not orthodox Jews and Mm. the reason that that's relevant is that they sent me to orthodox Jewish day school and so there was this like the reason they did it according to them was that my grandparents wanted to make sure that we, as a, as the kids in our family, had this like strong mm-hmm. sense of Jewish identity. And my parents were like, okay, well, the way to do that is to go to like these certain schools. And to be and what mm-hmm. I would learn later is that the Solomon Schechter, which is a conservative day school, at the time was having leaks in the in the classrooms. And so then mm. the kids were like learning in the hallway and these are private school tuitions. And my parents were like, we're <laughs> not going to pay whatever to have her be in class in the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll go to the Orthodox one because they have not leaky classrooms. Yeah. yeah. So what that resulted in was me learning about like, oh, you have to be really kosher. You have to you can't go out on Shabbat, you know, and being like friends with all these like Orthodox kids. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. I wasn't like we would learn, you know, oh, you can't eat non-kosher, you can't go out on Shabbos. Meanwhile, we're driving to Rudy's Pizza to get pepperoni (laughs) on Friday night, you know, literally. And so, and I remember like one Monday, you know, my friend Shira, who's like my, still my best friend, like from first grade, Mm -hmm. she's like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And I was like, uh, well, went to the museum, ice skating. We went to a movie and like all these, you know, I'm six. So I had like a whole itinerary and she's like, you did all that on Sunday. And I was like, (laughs) 
Yep, I did. Because at that time, I was like, I'm just a liar because I don't know. You've been a tiny scammer your entire life. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So it was like, I think that having this character who had mm. their adult self being like, okay, this all works out, was yeah. calming to me. And I think that that was my coping mechanism because I'm like, right now, this feels like there's a lot of inner conflict, but I have to believe that this like gets resolved Uh in order uh to go on, I think. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that that's like inner conflict, like there's tumult in it. Right. Sure. 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 Like, yeah. But just like you're reconciling things. You're you're reconciling these like contrasting or conflicting right. elements right. it's like how do I square this and yeah. ca- and will I ever correct and also you were talking about the dad being like this angry guy I actually took a lot of comfort in the personality of um what was his name Jack Jack Arnold Jack, was, Jack, yeah. Jack, Jack, yeah so my cat's name actually um so anyway <laughs> true I did not realize that until <laughs> this moment so But anyway, the personality of that dad to me was so comforting because I had my dad was like that, which is to say, because I feel like at least at the time, I think Mm -hmm. I I still think it's a pretty nuanced character description. That actor is really great because he's he's so good because he does. Oh, Dan Uh, Loria. Yes. Thank you. Producer Marissa Marissa comes in with Dan Loria. Um, I feel comfortable saying this, that like at the time and maybe still. There were these ways that dads on TV were either like mm. sitcom dads, which I'm like, my dad's not like that, or right. super scary on a drama dad. And I yeah. was like, my dad's not like that either. But that guy, yeah. Jack, Ar- I was like, that's my dad. OK, yeah, because yeah. Jack, he wasn't like he was angry, but he it came from love and you could see it. In Mm -hmm. the way that Dan Loria played the character Mm -hmm. of Jack Arnold. And you could tell that he was just stressed out. You know, (laughs) he wasn't like being mean because it was in his soul. He was just like, oh my God, how am I going to like, you know, work at this dumb job and support three kids in the suburbs of Chicago? It's stressful, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, I I really, I had a dad like that who was really Mm -hmm. trying to, like, make it all happen. Because, you know, I had, I mean, we were a lot less wealthy than Mm -hmm. everybody at our school. You know, I went to school with really rich kids. Like, you know, this one's the CEO of Revlon or, you know, like. Kind of that sure, sort yeah. of thing, and we. I would imagine, yeah. like in it's in like a New Jersey suburb, there's yeah. a lot of that, like commuting and to Manhattan. A hundred, yes, a hundred percent. And I went to high school in the city, and so then it becomes like a oh, gossip girl sure. type of of situation. Yeah. And we were not like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like this thing where my parents were always like just trying to keep it together, but they mm-hmm. really wanted us to go to these schools. And Mm -hmm. then you go to the schools and like everybody's dressed in a way and we're, you know, kids and we want to dress like everybody else. Oh, the the bat mitzvah, it's got to be a certain level or whatever. And it's like all this social pressure. And I feel terrible like looking back because like had I really known the way that I know now, I would have been like, okay, like just 
don't like let's have it on (laughs) zoom or whatever like that didn't exist at the time but you know you know what i'm saying so i really related because i don't think that i can think of i'm not like a tv expert or for that matter literally anything else see above (laughs) however i do feel comfortable saying that i think that that depiction of a dad who was like kind of scary but not scary like you were actually afraid that he was going to do something is really rare. Yeah, he's, he was scary in the sense of, like, you knew if you walked into that house, you'd say Mr. Arnold. Yeah. Like, hi, Mr. Arnold. Yes. And he would be like, hi. Right. And if you didn't call, you called him Jack, <laughs> it'd be like, what'd you say? Right, right. And like, yes, sorry, Mr. <laughs> Arnold. Sorry, Mr. Arnold. Yeah, I can just, like, see him, like, grunting, you know, or just, <laughs> yeah. like... Because <laughs> I had I had friends that were sort of more chatty around my dad, and my dad was just like, "What? Like, <laughs> what, what is this person doing in my house? You know, like just like, okay, yeah. you're annoying. Like every my dad like started at stressed out and annoyed. You know, like that. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 it wasn't again like it wasn't because he was a bad guy. It was it was just because yeah. he was like tired and stressed. In the way that people who are like middle to lower class trying to make it happen can be because it's stressful. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back more with Liz, then I will have one quick thing before we go about a very me movie trailer that debuted this week. Uh, The movie is called Hidden Strike. So we're going to talk about that at the end of the show. Stick around. You probably already have a favorite animal. Maybe it's a powerful apex predator like the tiger or a cute and cuddly panda. And those are great, but have you considered something a little more unconventional? Could I perhaps interest you in the Greenland shark, which can live for nearly 400 years? Or maybe the jewel wasp who performs brain surgery on cockroaches to control their minds? On Just the Zoo of Us, we review animals by giving them ratings out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Listen with friends and family of all ages to find your new favorite animal with Just the Zoo of Us on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Since the dawn of time, man has dreamed of bringing life back from the dead. From Orpheus and Eurydice to Frankenstein's monster, resurrection has long been merely the stuff of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. Until now. Actually, we still can't bring people back from the dead. That would be crazy, but the Dead Pilot Society podcast has found a way to resurrect great dead comedy pilots from Hollywood's finest writers. Every month, Dead Pilot Society brings you a reading of a comedy pilot that was sold and developed, but never produced, performed by the funniest actors from film and television. How does Dead Pilot Society achieve this miracle? The answer can only be found at MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm talking today with comedian Liz Glazer, who feels seen by the twofold character of both child and adult Kevin Arnold from the classic 1980s, 1990s ABC show, The Wonder Years. Let's get back to our conversation. The feel of The Wonder Years is mm-hmm. so specific. Yeah. And it like, it's such a naturalistic show. Yeah. Like, it really like, 
Yeah. It just unfolds. It's mm-hmm. just a kind of constant slice of life with not necessarily bad guys. It's just people yeah. doing their best. Totally. And I was like, do we have do we have coming of age TV like that anymore? Of like, I certainly don't know. Of yeah. like of like everyone just doing their best, or does everyone have like a superpower or right. they have like or they're on drugs and it's euphoria? Like Well, yeah. Like, I Wonder Years is the anti-euphoria. I think that's right. And you know, as I was re-watching it, I was like, I think the inciting incident is really nothing more than it's the first day of middle school. And yeah. <laughs> that's it's, you know, like the way that you learn how to like write a Yeah, pilot. and it's not the first day of middle school and that Kevin Arnold has to like, has to like win a competition no. to like no, get no. the girl or prove him. So just he just starting. is going to school that day. Just, just he's <laughs> yeah, got to go. And the thing is that it's like true to life in the sense that like, you know, you think of, I mean, in how to write a television pilot, you know, it's like mm-hmm. the inciting incident is like this a meteor, like here's normal life and then a meteor mm-hmm. hits and now we yeah. have the story, right? And the thing is that when you're 12 years old and you gotta go to a new school for middle school, yeah. uh, that's a meteor. And That's a meteor! <laughs> that's a meteor! Yeah, and like living, I mean, it's a real credit in both versions to the acting of Mm -hmm. everybody on the show and the writing, obviously, but like the acting in order to convey the gravity of a moment like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and how big it felt. I watched the epilogue, like the very last scene and how Mm -hmm. it kind of sends you off for the the whole series. And it ends with like the best 4th of July ever Mm -hmm. kind of situation. And Daniel Stern, like giving you the roadmap of sort of where everybody went. Like mom, she did great in business and Wayne took over like dad's furniture company. And he is looking back on his life with this like wizened reflection, like in a way now that I would assume this is like a 55 year old guy looking back mm-hmm. at his childhood. Yeah. And like, but the timeline that it gives us yeah. is that like, he talks about how like the next summer when he went off to study like art history in Paris and we wrote each other every week for eight years. Yeah. And when she got back, I was there to meet her at the airport with my wife and my eight month yeah. old first child. Yeah. And I like, I hear that. And when I was little to me, that was so grown. Like, Kevin, Kevin was such an adult. That Kevin is probably maybe 25. Yeah. He has an eight-month-old. He's picking up his first great love from the airport. Yeah. And now, like, I'm thinking, like, 25? Yeah. I know 25-year-olds now showing up to the airport with their eight-month. Like, that's yeah, crazy. And is. so then, like, it's... And about the the age that Daniel Daniel Stern's son is mm-hmm. the boy in the bo- background voiceover that's like, hey, dad, you want to play catch? Yep, right. And his son is about 10 years old when that happens. So this is like adult Kevin is like early to mid 30s. Yeah. Looking back on his life like this. And I'm when did you realize mm-hmm. that like life could start later for you? than how fiction told you. Because I remember in high school, I was like, well, obviously by 24, I'm going to have two children. Because 24 is like, it's it. Like, I grew up in Mm. a small town in Oregon. And so when, like, you're somebody who's gone on to second career and been like, actually, this first thing wasn't what I wanted to do. So did you have a break where you were like, holy shit, fiction made me think 25 was as old as it gets? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. And I think... I think for me, there are a couple moments that occur. Mm. 
One is, so I, I'm gay, but like when I was in college, I had a boyfriend for three and a half of the four years. Mm-hmm. And it was the kind of relationship that like, first of all, it was like, I mean, it wasn't like a good, really, like we fought all the time, but like it was sort of sitcom-y the way that we did. And so, sure, okay. it, you know, he wasn't the right person in part yeah. because he was a guy. And I (laughs) would then find that out when I kissed somebody else who was a woman and not a guy. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like everything I never thought was possible, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And um, and I think that that was a moment when I was like, life can start again, because I never when I was dating my college boyfriend, it was sort of this thing where I was like, oh, I guess we'll get married, I guess. But I, I never had the vision of like, Mm. like, I guess I envision having kids, but Mm. I think that my vision was just like, kind of like me. Like I, I wanted Mm. a partner. Yeah. But I think because I had such gay shame when I was younger that I don't Mm -hmm. think I allowed myself to fully imagine what I really wanted Mm-hmm. And so having a vision of me, I think, was just safer than, like, mm-hmm. imagining a wedding to someone. I was like, I wasn't, like, interested in, like, marrying a boy. No, I, I know I know very specifically what you mean. I, I love very big and I love very deeply. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I consider myself having, like, a limitlessness to love in my life. But at the same time, there yeah. have been so few, there are so few possibility models for mm-hmm. what a happy ending in the in the sort of conventional yeah. sense looks like for someone like me. Yeah. So like I I envision myself in terms of a future as surrounded by people, but the idea of thinking of myself in a future context with a, the person, right. my person, right. uh, in the way that like straight people have like mm-hmm. their person and the way that even like gay married people have their person. Sure. Like, to be an ace individual and have love be, um, have that path be something that I'm kind of carving for myself because I don't really get to see how it works with others. Like yeah. it, it is me making something up yeah. when I consider myself as having that sort of future. Sure. It's being like, well, sure, I guess so, because it doesn't feel necessarily real. Yeah. It's me completely, completely, like, headcanoning something. So I know what you mean of it yeah. just being, like, looking forward and seeing myself. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean by that. Yeah, and thank you for validating that, because I think it is true, and I don't know that I've yeah. ever, like, put it that way. And the other moment that I think of is I remember when I was teaching law, and this must have been around 2012-ish. I wasn't in comedy. I wasn't even close, really, to being in comedy. But I was getting a bit disillusioned. And when mm-hmm. I say that, I mean, I was like, you know, I used drugs. And and I, I'm sober now, but I wasn't then. And I wouldn't, sure. like, go to work having... Like, I wasn't, like, high at teaching. Right. But... It was just I was living a life where I was like going to my job and then like smoking pot or drinking yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't a relationship based just on fun. Yeah. There were other elements yeah. of your relationship with using right. substances. Yeah, exactly. There weren't necessarily sustainable reasons. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it wasn't, I mean, and, and I like to say that it's not so much like a, a tamping down of the experience. I just like, like, it's like the drug stories that sometimes people hear and tell that presumably are true related to being sober and getting sober or like, Oh, and then I was in a gutter and whatever. I don't really have that. I just had like a kind of mild, like 
buzz very frequently to a point that I don't think I knew exactly how I felt anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it was around a time when that was happening. And I had this research assistant uh, who was a student in my law class who was Mm -hmm. like, you kind of have a Lena Dunham vibe. Have you ever watched Girls? And I was like, (laughs) no. Okay. (laughs) And at the time, what would I have been? Um, Whatever it was, it was like, yeah, that sounds right. So I was a little older than Hannah Horvath. Yeah. Uh, And I don't mean to bring up another character, um, but. Oh, no, go for it. Go for it. But. uh, Please. But (laughs) I watched the show and I was like, oh my God, I totally know what this research assistant meant. And like, I watched that show, like studied Mm -hmm. it. And I couldn't even explain at the time why I was so interested in it. But it was Mm -hmm. almost like this lost um, stage of my 20s that I never had. And so like Hannah in the pilot mm-hmm. um, for, you know, just refreshing. Hannah's cut off by her parents in the pilot, monetarily, financially. Yeah. And so she, a writer, has to figure it out with this internship yeah. that she's not getting paid for and, like, she has rent in the city and, you know, all of a sudden. So that's the big meteor inciting incident yeah. of that show. In her 20s, she's probably, like, 22-ish probably or whatever. Like 23, 22, yeah. yeah. Something she's like fresh that. out of college. Right, right. And when I was fresh out of college, I was right in law school. And so I didn't have that stage that I was sort of on the precipice at the time that I watched Girls for the first time on the recommendation of this student about to embark on. Right. I know exactly what you mean, because I said I routinely say that, like, the frustration of now in my life Mm -hmm. is that I'm doing my early 20s and my late 30s. and It's less cute now. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So so maybe it was girls that ultimately led me to quit my job, but like or to do stand up or whatever. I don't think exactly. But like I watched that show so obsessively in Mm. what would be you know, I guess the like year and a half leading up to when I did stand up for the first time. Mm -hmm. I think that watching someone whose main pursuit as Mm -hmm. Hannah's is on the show Girls is fully realizing her own expression of self. Mm -hmm. We watch her, you know, in all of her like Plotting all over her face. I love that show. I mean, I one of my one of my most feeling seen moments yeah. in in all of film or television uh-huh. is the very end of that show uh-huh. when Marnie yeah. is with Hannah and they she has the moment where she like Hannah's gonna have that baby right and Marnie's like we're gonna raise this baby <laughs> and she looks at her and she's like I'm your best friend I win yeah I love you the most uh-huh. like that that insane monologue yeah. is me dialed up to my most delusional yep. and i absolutely love marnie michaels yeah throughout that show but in that moment i was like marnie me and you <laughs> i would not be this fucking narcissistic about what you're doing but everything in me yeah. would want to do what you're doing I and know. i would just know how to control it it's uh, you know i i love whenever i'm in the middle of a rewatch of that show because mm-hmm. I get to just feel like they're alive. And yeah. what a great thing to say about a show that that's what you want is you just want to 
believe, like be in it, in life Mm -hmm. with these fictional Mm -hmm. characters, you know, and Girls, I think probably is the only show that has ever been able to do that for me, like throughout the show. At the time, the Wonder Years did it because the Wonder Years for me, I mean, that was a time when we were still on VHS. We were still on press, play, record, like run downstairs, you know, (laughs) to the VCR TV, do it. And then, of course, after you're like, oh, it taped like something else or whatever. Yeah, and the bathroom breaks during the commercials. You run to the bathroom, make sure you get back in time. Yeah, 100%. So it was all that. And I remember the episode of Paul's Bar Mitzvah, which was so <laughs> exciting to me because I'm Jewish. Yeah. You know, I I remember like wanting to see it so badly. And then something happened with the tape and I didn't get to watch <laughs> it until reruns. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So that was really, I was so upset to miss Paul Pfeiffer's <laughs> Bar Mitzvah. And <laughs> not Paul's bar mitzvah. I know it was, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a really great episode. And like, you know, there are a lot of really great episodes of that show. And and I think that you're right. It had such a naturalistic feel. It was such a work of art. Um, each episode, like just these, mm-hmm. the, the colors that they use and how I feel like mm-hmm. it was always like that kind of sun setting on a suburban block sort yeah. of thing. And it's like so beautiful yeah. now that I, I I literally live on a suburban block that like if if it would be a block where the Wonder Years or a show yeah. like it would happen, that would work because yeah. it's such that kind of block, which I feel so grateful for. And like that's the scene that I'm looking out on. Well, I love that I love that we have bookended the conversation yep. with two <laughs> two coming of age yeah. stories yeah. that are both like that are both like there's there's a you know there's a sort of hyperbole to girls but in the sense yeah. of like kind of just in the way that like girls in their 20s are hyperbolic yeah. like because they're both very just like they are both very naturalistic and they are both very yes. slices of life yeah um and I'm glad to I'm glad to have the continuity of that in in art that has resonated with you with formative characters I thought you were also going to say that we were bookending the conversation with me wistfully looking out a window <laughs> oh, looking out a window at sunset. Correct. You know, in a, in a house that could be any house, yes. with a yard that could be any yard it's in true. America, on yeah. a street that could be any street. Yes. I remember a place, a town, a house, like a lot of houses. A yard like a lot of other yards. On a street like a lot of other streets. And the thing is, after all these years, I still look back with wonder. I've come. I've come to the end of the time, and I feel bad about that because I'm so. This was delightful, Jordan. So much for the time. Thank you. Yeah, truly, this was really a huge pleasure. Thank you again to my new friend, Liz Glazer. We we hold each other in our hearts. We honor the passage of time. Her debut comedy album, A Very Particular Experience, is out now from Blonde Medicine. We will put a link to it in the show notes so you can go check it out. And now, uh, that one quick thing before I go. The trailer for the movie, Hidden Strike, in which there is, it looks like, a war for oil. 
2X Special Forces soldiers must escort a group of civilians along Baghdad's Highway of Death to the safety of the green zone. This looks like somebody in my in my replies on Twitter was like, I'm surprised they didn't call it Fury Highway and that it was extremely well observed because you watch this movie and it is absolutely this conceit plus Fury Road, guys. Like the aesthetic of it looks like the color palette. It looks we, like we are going hard on a George Miller Mad Max Fury Road tip. And great. I like that movie. I fucking love that movie. That's a modern masterpiece. Why not be inspired by that movie? Why not chase that dream? Uh, and John Cena, what a charming, huge man. Just popping up in Fast X to make it a children's movie every time he was on screen, having misadventures with Dom's son. And now we get Hidden Strike with him and Jackie Chan. And I think he is a very, his sort of gigantic man oafishness uh, mixed with like pure beat down abilities. That's a great foil for Jackie Chan in an action duo buddy heist special forces movie. I, I think this is a good pairing. I feel really optimistic about this chemistry. Um, the special effects frankly look, I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but it's just, like, it's, it's quaint. This movie almost looks quaint. It looks like the what gets me is this is a, it's being distributed by XYZ Films. XYZ Films makes like kick ass legit genre cinema. This movie does look more from the first looks like a DTV spectacular, but we are getting XYZ Films brings you DTV looking spectacular with icon of a man Jackie Chan and mountain of a human John Cena. So I feel like we're really blending action movie interests of mine in this. And people are taking oil and people got to stop them from taking oil and things are going to blow up and people are going to get thrown and tossed. And Jackie hopefully is not letting himself get really beat up as he has historically in his career doing his own stunts and everything because he is not the youngest man anymore and he is forever vital, forever vital. We do not underestimate you, Jackie, but Jackie, we wish you for you to take care of yourself. We love you. We we love you. We want you around even longer. Um, but yeah, big, big man, martial arts hero, Bring them together. Have them fuck people up. Have them stop or start or achieve, I don't know, an oil heist. I don't know what side of this they're on. Frankly, it's immaterial to me. Uh, but yeah, Hidden Strike coming later this year. Uh, this sounds like fun. And I think we should all be down for fun at the movies. This and Barbie, you guys. Like, who knew this year would bring us such bounties as this? Um, yes. So this movie, the counterpart to Barbie, you heard it here first. And that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter, J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Eben. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.